and welcome to What Like It's Hard, the podcast that celebrates and explores the academic study of popular music. I'm Kirsten and this is the second episode of our freshman series. So until this one, you've already heard Shane Macron talk about traditional Irish music in both Ireland and Canada and you've also heard three of our keynote series episodes and those episodes are the ones with professors giving a paper that is based on an aspect of popular music. This series though, the freshman series, is more industry based so while you're still getting the podcast episode you also have the opportunity to sign up to the bulletin which you can do over on our Patreon page. With every monthly subscription, 25% is donated to Student Minds, who work with maintaining positive mental health within the student community. Following on from episode 4 last Sunday about Etta Moten's I Remember When radio show on WMAQ in the 50s, today's episode is a little different. We're still talking about radio, but I'm going to read the paper that I presented at the Popular Culture Association and American Culture Association's annual conference. Because this podcast is based on the premise of creating a free digital space for grad students to share and discuss research on popular music in a conference style setting, there's a call for papers to fill out in order to participate in What Like It's Hard. And it just follows the same format as you would do for an in-person conference. You can find information on how to participate in this podcast on our website, which is www.wlihpodcast.com. And you'll also find information on how to write an abstract and an academic biography over on the freshman tab of the website. Because although you have the option to sign up for extra content through the Freshman's Bulletin, the highlighted parts do appear on the website every second Sunday. So you'll find that over there. So a little bit about the Popular Culture Association and the American Cultural Association. From now on, I might refer to them as PCAACA, just to keep it short. So the Popular Culture Association was founded by scholars who believed the American Studies Association was too committed to the then existing canon of writers like Melville, Hawthorne and Whitman. They believed that the American Studies Association had lost its holistic approach to cultural studies and they thought that there was little room for the study of material culture, popular music, movies and comics. So to remedy this situation, professors Ray Brown from Bowling Green State University and Russell Nye from Michigan State University created an organization in 1970 that would be open to more subjects and forms of cultural studies. The association's first meeting was in East Lansing, Michigan at Michigan State University in 1971. In 1979, the American Culture Association became a partner in the study of popular culture and the two organizations have held joint conferences ever since. The conference has continued to grow every year and now each national conference has well over 2,000 participants. Moreover, the organization has seven regional organizations, the Northeast, Mid-Atlantic, South, Midwest, Far West, Southwest Texas, and Oceanic. 
The regional organizations range in size from 200 to 1,000 participants, so it's huge. Popular culture is also closely affiliated with four international popular culture organizations over in Australia, New Zealand, East Asia, Canada and Europe. In 2003, the organization went through a major change in leadership when Ray and Pat Brown stepped down as the leaders of the PCA-ACA after many years of building and nurturing the organization. Michael Shonick became the executive director along with presidents of the PCA, Lynn Bartolome and John Bratzel, alongside David Skoll and Ken Drovrak, from the American Cultural Association. The next generation of the organization chartered for a new direction. Gary Hoppenstein took over the editorship of the Journal of Popular Culture and Kathy Merlick Jackson became editor of the Journal of American Culture. New bylaws were written for both the PCA and the endowment and subsequently the PCA and the ACA merged their boards to streamline decision making and to avoid duplication. Lynn Bartolome became the first president of this joint association. John Bratzel was the first executive director. Sadly, in 2009, Ray Brown passed away and his partner, both in work and life, Pat Brown, passed away in 2013. Browns are pioneers of the field and their hard work, encouragement, intellect and leadership ability is sorely missed by everyone associated with the organisation. They left an impressive body of work and a legacy for future generations to build on. In the future, the PCA-ACA plans to continue to nurture the study of popular and American culture to support new and established scholars in both their research and teaching, to support the publication of its two journals and to internationalize the organization. I was there in Washington DC along with over 3,000 other attendees and participants in April of this year, which was actually their 49th annual conference. So next year, they are in Philadelphia. In the conference, there are around 90 different subjects that are covered, all the way from advertising, sports culture, creative writing, broadcasting, baby boomer culture, and even drinking culture. It's a lot and it's all there. I spoke on the British Popular Culture panel about pirate radio in the UK and how Radio Caroline infiltrated the BBC. So here's my paper titled The Boats That Rocked Return of the Pirates of the Airwaves founding principles of rebellion and resilience of the 1960s British music scene can be characterised by the pirate figure. Successful in their mission, the boats that literally and figuratively rocked around Britain have had a resounding impact on the current music industry. Much more than a criminalised underdog in radio policy and regulation, pirate radio created a platform for a community that wanted to be heard. In Britain, many people were becoming disillusioned by the manifestos of monarchy and right-wing politics, and as such, music started to embody that disillusionment. As the Sex Pistols were sailing down the River Thames, screaming anarchy in the UK during the infamous Rising of 77, Radio Caroline had already been sailing the airwaves over international waters for 13 years. 
This paper utilizes musicology as a political act to consider the influence of Radio Caroline in British popular culture. By analyzing Caroline's seafaring history and the irony of infiltrating the BBC, this paper discusses the political and social implications of the emergence and re-emergence of Radio Caroline. This concludes that the legacy of pirate radio has created a community where music lovers and creators have not only a space to listen, but to also be heard in British popular culture. Now, while both enjoyed rum, Blackbeard was more into plundering ships to steal their gold, and Ronan O'Reilly was more into using the ships for broadcasting. O'Reilly founded Radio Caroline in 1964 to bypass the record company's control of popular music in the UK and the BBC's broadcasting monopoly. O'Reilly ran the Scene Nightclub in London's Soho district and he managed a number of pop artists, including Georgie Fame, who he had recorded on his own then-unknown independent record label. On discovering the BBC's refusal to play Fame's record due to the record industry being dominated by EMI and DECA, O'Reilly went to Radio Luxembourg, where he essentially found payola shows from major labels like EMI, DECA, Pi and Philips. But having recorded Fame, O'Reilly knew that he had to get the record played somewhere, and if you want something done, just why not do it yourself? So at noon on the 28th of March 1964 off the coast of Felixthal, Radio Caroline began broadcasting from an ex-German Navy ship called the Mi Amigo. Mike Pasternak, who is better known as Radio Caroline's Emperor Roscoe, describes setting eyes on the Mi Amigo for the first time as a floating hunk of rust. Now, despite her appearance, the radio station does come with a delicate name. The choice of Caroline is inspired by a picture of young Caroline Kennedy dancing in the Oval Office. And to O'Reilly, this picture encompassed playful disruption in the face of authority. Unsure of who could hear or who was listening, O'Reilly was nevertheless ecstatic to have Caroline as the first pirate radio station in the UK music industry. So pirate radio stations broadcast without valid licensing. And in some cases, radio stations are considered legal where the signal is transmitted, but illegal when signals are received, especially when signals cross over national boundaries. However, O'Reilly jumped through this loop by anchoring Radio Caroline 5.5 kilometers away from the southeast coast of England. The arrival of pirate radio stations like Caroline fueled a desire for liberation from the post-war mundanity. British pop was unprecedented, it was full of energy and it held a frustration that continues to reverberate today so many decades later. Music became an avenue for cultural progression as changing attitudes were beginning to be recognised. Harold Wilson, who was the leader of the Labour Party, held up the post as Prime Minister within a streak of conservative austerity. The explicit revolt by the younger generations against class, age and gender straddled the division between high and low culture, which ultimately became a force that nobody, Wilson included, could afford to ignore. 
New and fresh ideas were coming in fast from a wealth of influences and being free from British authorities determined freedom from record company and artist rights restrictions. Radio Caroline could import the American Top 40 format so they could play today's biggest hits repeatedly, which would give tomorrow's biggest hits time to climb up the charts. The demand for popular music presented the British government, who regulated radio with the British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, quite a big challenge. This new and influential demographic had an appetite that needed to be satisfied, and although the BBC had already made attempts to do so with the programme Saturday Club, which first started airing in 1958, and the programme Top Gear, which closely followed in 64, these programmes mixed records and half-live sessions with the likes of Jimi Hendrix, The Who, and Dusty Springfield and The Beatles, but the BBC just couldn't compete with the spontaneity and the excitement of the fast-moving pirate radio space. Tony Benn, who was the postmaster general between 64 and 66, while opposed to the operation of pirate radio, considered emphasis on popular music necessary, given that it was what the younger generations wanted to listen to. Ben brought up a proposal to challenge private radio by dedicating an entire station to the cause with BBC chairman Lord Norman Brooke, who replied... You can't have popular music all the time. It would be like having the pubs open all day. Which sounds fantastic. (laughs) But Lord Norman Brooke's belief holds up with the archaic BBC notion that popular music encourages immoral and antisocial behaviour. Within 18 months, the Beatles, the Stones and the Who would have thrown off post-war austerity and governmental authority, leaving the notion that the younger generations of British people would never be governorable again. The BBC has always run on a revenue of public licensing and one of the biggest issues within the pirate radio community that was, besides a small sum given to presenters each week, no one was actually being paid for anything. As well as a threat to the BBC, the record companies were in an ambiguous situation because, of course, they wanted people to hear their records so that people would eventually buy them. Therefore, it made sense for the record companies to give their records over to the pirates, which actually led to a drop in younger listeners of the BBC programmes like Top Gear. More than just revenue, the changing political attitudes of such large audiences were starting to shake the government's trust of the BBC. DJ Johnny Walker explains that while the government didn't understand the half of it, they did understand the unifying power of music. In an attempt to destroy the Stones, the British police were hounding Brian Jones and the BBC kept a close eye on Radio Caroline by recording every show. If the BBC caught anything political or critical of Wilson that may portray a deeper and more sinister agenda, then Radio Caroline would be much easier to sink. A British Path film crew visited Radio Caroline in 65 and took footage from the post noting in narration. For over a year, Radio Caroline has given pop music to something like 20 million listeners, changing British popular culture with the confidence of almost every teenager in South East England. 
Unlike the BBC, there were no official ratings. The only way that the station could gauge popularity was by direct reaction. These direct reactions included boatloads of mail, tourist boats that would pull up alongside, and the legions of fans who would line the docks when Radio Caroline came ashore. Tony Blackburn was one of the original Radio Caroline DJs, becoming the youngest broadcaster in the UK at only 21 years old. Blackburn's experience of broadcasting was limited to his love of Radio Luxembourg, although his passion for broadcasting made him extremely successful on the station. Blackburn recalls handing out Radio Caroline's vinyl from his red sports car when disembarked in the port town of Harwich, recalling, It took me about an hour and a half to get out of town, just hundreds of people lining the streets. They didn't know what I looked like, but they had heard about the car. The onboard pirate lifestyle was not as wild as film portrayals, like the boat that rocked would have you believe. Life on Radio Caroline was actually pretty tame, with the British staple tea being a favourite provision. Blackburn says the alcohol quota landed at two beers per person to avoid any haphazard falls overboard. The prime activity on board consisted of show planning, TV, sunbathing and playing cards. Blackburn does recall the ships of tourists and calling a few women passengers on board for, in Pasternak's words, a cup of tea. Walker had a girlfriend, Dee Dee, in London, who was astonished to hear that everyone on board remained fairly sober. Dee Dee tuned in to Radio Caroline every night when Walker's show played, so at around 9.30pm, Walker would say, I just want to say good evening to Dee and Kilburn, and we've run out of tea, love. Two days later, a padded envelope full of spliffs would arrive, and three days later, sackfuls of mail filled with Thai-Fu and Tetley tea bags would arrive. Over more cups of tea, no doubt, lawmakers were figuring out what to do with pirate radio legislation. During a heated argument over a radio transmitter, Oliver Smedley, who was a formal liberal political figure turned businessman, shot and killed a station manager. Smedley, along with Australian businessman Alan Crawford, successfully launched Radio Atlanta, Britain's second full-time offshore commercial radio station. Reginald Calvert, founder of pop group The Fortunes, started a rival called Radio City. Smedley tried to persuade Calvert to amalgamate with Radio Caroline in exchange for a new transmitter. The new transmitter, though, was faulty and Calvert refused to pay for it, so Smedley hired a group of riggers to board Radio City to take back the transmitter. Calvert began sending threatening voicemails to Smedley and later the next night he went to Smedley's house with the intent of attacking him. In an act of self-defence, Smedley shot him and was later acquitted on those grounds of self-defence. But the scandal gave the government a final nail for the pirate radio coffin. Labour Party politician Hugh Jenkins addressed the Parliament. The extraordinary and tragic events of the past 24 hours have impressed on everyone that piracy is piracy. The Marine and Broadcasting Offences Act came into effect on the 14th of August 1967. This made it illegal for any British person to do business or even just associate with ships broadcasting radio from the UK. 
With pirate radio on the seabed, the BBC had 15 million listeners to appease. The decision was made to poach the DJ talent to create a separate station dedicated to popular music. Walker claims to have seen a BBC memo addressed to the Radio 1 controller stating, On no account should Johnny Walker be employed for at least a year to let the taint of criminality subside. Blackburn took the honour of being the first to grace Radio 1, crediting the BBC for learning from pirate radio. The loosening of regulation allowed for the pirates to do things their own way on the station, and according to Blackburn, this move was sensible. Although not all DJs were as accrediting as Blackburn, the late Dave Cash describes the BBC hating the pirates, of which he didn't care, and speaking about his career on BBC Radio 1, he said, I take their money, but I don't care, and if you need a real pirate over there in America, I'm your man. Radio Caroline has also moved on, taking on her new journey as a ghost ship, operating through online streaming platforms. In 2019, Radio 1 is the most influential station in the international music industry, having introduced audiences to an array of genres from prog rock and electronica to Britpop and grime. Pasternak says that the fans of the British pop invasion have Radio Caroline and its pirate forebears to thank for doing the groundwork for their stateside success. It is somewhat of an irony that the pirates took to Radio 1, but Radio Caroline created a beacon of light for young people in post-war Britain, allowing creators and listeners of music to have their own space to listen to what they wanted to. And most importantly, it gave them the chance to be heard in British pop culture through BBC Radio 1. Thank you for listening to my paper that I presented this year at the 2019 PCA-ACA conference. Remember to leave a review on whatever platform you choose to listen to your podcasts on and you can follow along with our content on our Instagram page at WLIH podcast and you can also visit our website which is www.wlihpodcast.com. This episode is part of The Freshman, and when you subscribe through the WLIH Patreon page, you aren't just supporting this network, you are also supporting the UK's leading student mental health charity, Student Minds. 25% of every subscription goes to the efforts made by Student Minds to empower students and members of the university community to look after their own mental health, support others, and create change. You can find more information over on our website, which is again www.wlihpodcast.com. Next Sunday, we are back with another keynote episode with Dr. James Carter of Drew University. So until then, have a great week.